Before we get started, today's episode is a little different. While I always try my best to stick to the same rating level as the show, so no swears or explicit content, because of today's topic, sexual harassment, I want to give a trigger warning to listeners as I will not only be talking about the show, but Coco and I will be having conversations as well. So this might not be an episode for everyone, and that's okay. Take care of yourself, and we'll see you next time. The Golden Girls are hitting a heavy subject today. It's the mid-80s and sexual harassment is a phrase barely in use, but leave it to the ladies to be groundbreaking trailblazers about such a sensitive subject. As Blanche finds a path that works for her as far as seeking revenge goes, Dorothy and company are on a desperate hunt for Frank Sinatra tickets. Somebody will end up in jail, while somebody else reminds us that the best revenge is your paper. All of that and Lugenhuden in today's episode adult education thank you for the friendship we've come so far and traveled wide you're my best friends i could never lie i love when we party dance and sing and laugh just doing our thing no matter the misters that come kitchen as a casually chic Dorothy in her very long dark seafoam green button-up blouse that is hanging oh so delicately over her white pants is cutting up veggies for a salad while a quiet rose sits at the kitchen table in her light blue top with purple undershirt and she sits and plays an invisible tic-tac-toe on the table all by herself. Sophia walks into the kitchen in her best I'm an old Sicilian grandmother look, complete with a purple dress with a lace collar, a maroon cardigan, and a florally scarf wrapped around the back of her hair. She's coming in hot as she needs to get to the beauty salon as to not be late to her appointment again. Instead of a verbal response from Dorothy, Sophia receives the can't you see I'm on the phone hand that we were all given as children. Appointment or not, Dorothy can't go right now as she is on the phone to the box office. Gather around, children, and I'll tell you a story about the days before the internet. See, before you could just click a button and buy a ticket when you learned your favorite singers and performers would be going on tour, you had to actually deal with a box office or, most often, Ticketmaster. I never liked the phone method, which meant you would learn when the tickets for your city's performance would go on sale, then you would spend the morning trying to get through and hope you were high enough in the line you'd be able to buy the tickets right then, over the phone. I'm more of a visual learner, so I would force my parents, usually my dad, to go with me to the local Ticketmaster outlet, which happened to be at our local athletic store, G.I. Joe's, and we'd wait in line outside, anxiously doing the math of, okay, there are X number of seats for sale and X number of box offices, and there are 45 people ahead of me, okay, maybe I'll get the tickets. And you'd stand outside for hours, sometimes people would do it overnight before the store was even open. Once inside, you waited in line again to actually purchase the tickets. Nothing was worse than after all that waiting, only to have the tickets sell out before you could get to the front of the line. 
Once you handed over the cash, you were handed actual tangible tickets that you then couldn't lose for like six months. It was exhausting. You internet kids don't know how good you've got it. Coco, did you ever have to deal with Ticketmaster? Only very lightly. My sister was a teenager, you know, when I was just young and she so she would do go to the warehouse, which was the music a music store in LA. Or I think in where we lived in Burbank, it was the Music Plus store. And yeah, you just wait in line. And I, I I think I did it a couple of times and I always thought it was cool. And I always liked that like there was like a ticket place. Mm-hmm. There was a little ticket masker kiosk <laughs> in like the music store or whatever. Uh, but no, I never, I've never been a concert lover. Um, I don't really like live music and I, <gasps> I've always been that way. Well, I like it, but I, I have a, just a very low threshold. I'm like there for about 20 minutes. Well, you don't like to go out and you don't like loud noises, so it's understandable. Fun quirk. <laughs> I wasn't calling you out, just stating facts. I mean, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. For those reasons, yeah, you I, are out. I like hanging out with you. Oh. Sophia has no concern for Dorothy's attempted ticket purchases. The last time she was late for her hair, she was punitively given the broken hair dryer, causing her hair to be huge and frizzy, just like Don King's. Don King is still alive, but he was at his peak of fame in the 80s and 90s. As an outrageous boxing match promoter, he was known for his over-the-top persona, famous fights like Thrilla in Manila, and for working with every great fighter you've ever heard of, Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali... And of course, he was known for his hair, with skunk-like coloring, the frizziest texture you've ever seen, and a height that seemed only possible for kid in play, which is another old reference, but go look them up. It was very tall hair. It's no wonder Sophia isn't interested in being late again. She doesn't want to be mocked the way Don King always was. A not-fun fact I learned while researching him, um, he has killed multiple people. Alicia, this is Coco reporting in. Hey, Coco. I was just raising my hand to to make that note if you weren't going to that I I knew that about him. That I Did thought it was, you know that? I thought it was one person that he had killed. I didn't know there were multiple. Yeah, so he actually shot a guy in the back for robbing one of his gambling houses. And then he served a whopping three years for stomping an employee to death. So it looks like I'll be doing another mini for Murder in the Rain based off of a Golden Girls story. Do you believe that? He was so famous. He was everywhere. Dorothy is right to not want to get off the phone. She's been on hold trying to purchase Frank Sinatra tickets. We're going to have to assume Dorothy was buying the tickets for a year out, as Frank was touring in 86, but he did not go to Florida. It wasn't until May 9th, 1987, that he played the USF Sundome in Tampa. Killing me softly with her song, killing me softly with her song. For anyone that doesn't know who Frank Old Blue Eyes Sinatra is, uh, I don't really know where to start. He was one of the first crooners, getting his start in the 1930s. He was one of the most famous people in the world for about 50 years, singing hit after hit, starring in blockbuster after blockbuster, marrying and adulterizing with starlet after starlet. It would have been incredible to see him perform live. Coco, who is your I'll stay on hold or I'll spend all my money to see you live, even though you're not a huge live music person? Man, it's hard for it's hard for me to think of a of an artist I would really want to see live yeah. enough to go see them. Let me think. Well, it's like uh, 
Rage is coming through. Like, I would next year. Okay, That'd thank be amazing. You. I would see Rage Against the Machine. I would see um, Run the Jewels. Yeah. If we get the chance, we probably should. You know who else I would love to go see is Chingy. When Dorothy says it's her dream to see Frank Sinatra, Sophia counters, but you have seen him. I took you and your sister. He came out on stage and then boom, Sophia fainted, leaving Dorothy to take care of her and to miss the entire concert. Dorothy came this close to seeing him again when Stan bought her tickets for her birthday. Her birthday, which was about three years ago, and right before the show, Stan asked for a divorce, leaving Dorothy with the house and kids. But he took the tickets. How rude of Stan to not only not let her have the tickets, but to take them back after giving them to her for a birthday present? That is cruel and unusual, and now I dislike Stan even more. As Dorothy continues to wait to buy her tickets, Blanche comes into the kitchen in her earring-to-kitten-heels pink outfit. It's just lovely. But no time for pleasantries about her outfit. She is distraught. She is, surprise, actually in school. Sadly, she has failed her psychology exam. While one exam doesn't sound like that much, it has quite the domino effect. If she fails the exam, which is her midterm, she'll fail the class. If she fails the class, she won't get a degree. If she doesn't get a degree, she won't get her promotion at work. Rose tries to be the lens of her namesake, saying there must be a positive to all of it, but Blanche shuts it down. I love how Rose is like, fine, I guess there isn't anything good. Because that's how I feel when I'm trying to cheer someone up or point out a positive aspect and it gets totally shut down immediately. It's like, cool, fine, I guess I'll go F myself. Hearing about Blanche's troubles in school reminded me how much I hate school (laughs) and also how quickly in a situation like this, I would just quit. Yeah. I hate school. Yeah. Realistic Dorothy points out it's not the end of the world. Blanche will just have to work harder through the rest of the term to make up for it. It's totally doable. Again, being reminded of the good things she has going for her, Dorothy attempts to relieve stress by pointing out that Blanche is doing well in her two art classes, but that's because Blanche likes art and has always had a special place in her heart for artists. And according to Sophia, her appreciation is not limited to artists. There's also mechanics, carpenters, delivery boys, gas station attendants, doctors, firemen, policemen. After far too much time on hold, the operator at the box office finally comes back to Dorothy, but she doesn't have good news. The concert is sold out. Ah, the fun gamble of losing a morning to hold, only to be totally disappointed. The good old days. When Dorothy learns of this travesty, we get a top 50 iconic Golden Girls line. No, no, I will not have a nice day! Rose is bummed about the concert, but not nearly as bummed as Dorothy. Disappointed or not, she will persevere. Without a moment passing from when she hung the phone up, she has already pulled out a phone book. That was a big book you kept in your house that had the phone numbers to the people in your city and the local businesses. It was very efficient. And Dorothy is going to call some ticket brokers to see if anyone has any tickets to the show. These are basically the people that nowadays buy way too many of the tickets, and then the show goes on sale, it sells out, and then they upcharge them on other sites. Yeah, that's basically who the brokers are. Sophia thinks that's a waste of her time as she's offered to make a few phone calls. Sophia isn't the only one with connections, though. 
Rose's best friend in St. Olaf has a nephew that works as a page at NBC in California, a.k.a. where the ladies are right then and there. So I wonder if that was a nod to someone's family member. A page is kind of a loose ends, errand running position at networks. Do you think that explains it well enough? Uh, a famous page that, well, not a famous page, but a notable page in uh, pop culture is in 30 Rock. I think that's uh, right. Kenneth the Page. Yeah, Jack McBrayer plays Kenneth the Page. And he's, they're just like gophers and sort of like like assistant, assistant, minor helper. Yeah, it's sort like of. I can show you around the studio and I can yeah. get things for people. Yeah, and... they're like a museum docent or whatever, a person who's like, hello, this yes. is a buffalo. While being a page is a perfectly respectable job, it isn't exactly one with a lot of pull or power. So while it is sweet, Rose is willing to take her time to write the friend who would then write to the son who would then not be able to get tickets, it seems like a lot of rigmarole for nothing. Blanche agrees with me that the whole writing process would just take way too much time, but Rose disagrees. She's patient enough to do it. To prove so, she tells the story of the time she had a sty. A sty occurs near the eye and is usually caused by the ducts getting clogged, forming a pus-filled eyelid pimple, basically. They go away on their own after a few days, and a warm washcloth held up to it will help expedite the process. So Rose's story of waiting two weeks for one to go away isn't exactly the most impressive. It's actually more concerning that it went on for so long. The length and hefty level of boredom in Rose's story has left Sophia asleep or half-dead, leaning against the fridge. With the same power of positive thinking Rose used to make her sty go away, Sophia is willing Rose to disappear. It's some time later, and Rose is Blanche's study buddy, walking her through psychology questions. Starting with one from Freud. Rose asks, who said a young man will be intimate with their mother to get revenge on their father? This story is actually called the Oedipus Complex, based on the character of the same name who, in Greek mythology, killed his father and married his mother. Psychologist Sigmund Freud went full throttle with this theory, which, when you really think about it, kind of took some nerve. Could you imagine putting that idea out there and everyone being like, dude, what are you talking about? What are you into? He must have done a lot of, like, blind studies of being like, hey. <laughs> You ever think about that? Have you? You know, I, I overheard a different doctor talking about this, and I'm just curious your thoughts on it. Isn't that It piqued my interest. or normal? It made me say, hmm. No, I mean, I've never thought of that. But I'm, I'm sure I others do. I just heard do. other people talking about do it. Do you? I do not. <laughs> Blanche isn't worried about Freud or Oedipus. She doesn't need to know who said it. She just knows someone that did it. Her second cousin, Arlen. It's a Southern thing. Shaken by how casual Blanche shares this information, Rose frantically tries to turn the page to find another question. Before she can, a tower of black and white layered collars atop a gray shirt in the form of Dorothy comes walking in the front door. She's been spending her day driving around to every ticket broker in town, desperate to get tickets to Frank Sinatra. And all of it was for nothing. They all told her the same thing. The only way to get a ticket is from a scalper. A scalper is someone who illegally sells tickets to events, usually just outside the venue. Pretty in a pink sweater with yellow, blue, and white around the neckline is Rose, who is horrified at the idea of Dorothy committing a crime like that. Dorothy throws out some casual blackmail when she points out that she isn't the only criminal in the house. Rose eats grapes when she's at the grocery store. And not just one or two testing the flavor grapes either. No way. She's taking 14 
Pointing this out has made Rose doubt her own innocence, allowing Dorothy to continue making her point. Good. You're a criminal. I'm a criminal. We can both break the law tomorrow when I go buy tickets. While Dorothy was planning on getting four tickets, Blanche is too yellow to go. Not that she's yellow about breaking the law. No, she's just in an oversized yellow jacket and two of the three ladies are in white pants. The bravery. But Blanche is also not available to go. The night of the concert is also the night of her final exam for her psychology class, which now that I'm thinking about it, her midterm was the day of the phone call and they said the concert was in two weeks. So is her class only four weeks long? So it's sitcom time. I feel like everything is sitcom universe runs it like I would say triple speed. 40 speed. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. So she has a very short class. It it's only be, a month long. I, I mean, I know. You know, we're not really the people to talk about these sorts of things, but going to school, I know that like if you go to night school or some some programs, it's like a really accelerated oh, that's curriculum and it's like a really fast Yeah, and program. she is only taking the three classes, so it's very possible she just needed a couple credits for her. See, there you go. That's why we talk it out. We think it's a plot whoopsie and it's like, whoa, hold the phone. Yeah. It makes sense. That's And maybe that's why the course is so difficult for her because it's oh, so much yeah. material. They don't say that, but I believe that's between the lines and we're going to go with it. That's canon. I'm going to add. I'm going to add a cannon sound right there. Blanche then performs the piece I call Why Alicia Hates and Didn't Do Well in School. Blanche starts listing off all the reasons studying so hard can't be good for you. You have no social life. You just study. It feels unhealthy and unnatural. And she needs to go to Wally's bar for ladies night. As she gets to the door, but before she can exit through it, Blanche is bombarded by her two moms, Rose and Dorothy. They go into full parent mode, sandwiching Blanche betwixt the two of them. They start telling her how she needs to apply herself and keep working. Rose then uses her favorite point of reference, Bob Hope. Bob Hope had been an entertainer for so long and had done so much for the U.S. troops that in the 1990s, after 60 years in the entertainment industry, Bob was given over 50 honorary degrees. Why Rose's comment is funny about Bob Hope being an example of someone who worked hard to earn those degrees is that honorary degrees mean kind of nothing. They're basically a nice gesture that is sometimes given to a person that attended the school and then became famous or someone that is famous and for whatever reason they want to honor that person and have them attend a ceremony. It's like a key to the city. Yeah. It's not going to open any. Yeah, he did work hard, but he didn't work academically hard to earn those degrees. I love these moments where even when usually Rose is trying to cheer someone up or make a good point, that person, usually Blanche, can't even be stuck in the opinion they were in because they're so distracted by the dumbness of Rose's statement. So even though Blanche is the one wanting to leave and not study, she knows Rose's Bob Hope comment was so dumb, she has no choice but to look at Dorothy with a kind of what am I supposed to do with this face? Dorothy, queen of reason, takes the reins from Rose and reminds Blanche that school is not meant to be easy and she's going to have to work hard, maybe even talk to her teacher. But Blanche is too embarrassed to do anything like that. To make her feel better, Dorothy shares that she used to feel the same way when she was a child. Back then, she had a speech impediment, which kept her from wanting to speak out. What kind of speech impediment? Well, from her follow-up comment, we can only assume she had a lisp that led to her struggling to say her R's. 
Barbara Walters is one of the most iconic television personalities of all time. Part of what makes her so iconic is her lisp. Her way of speaking has been fodder for Saturday Night Live and basically any show in the 80s and 90s. While she was provided a speech therapist when she started to work at NBC, she actually started to feel more self-conscious about her speaking, so she stopped working on it and she started to embrace it. If she had changed her voice into a flawless news anchor delivery, I don't know that people would still be caring about her nearly 70 years after the start of her newswoman career. Who wants to say Barbara Walters when you can say Baba Wawa? That's surprising to hear that she had a lisp. I, I, I assume that I just associate that with like a S sound. Yes, I thought the speech impediment was kind of a blanket statement, especially like an R, like not being able to say your R's. Uh, and lisp was more like a tongue-specific, like that kind of thing. So, yeah, that was very interesting to learn that her struggle with the R's made it uh, was a lisp. And also I love that, that in imagining her having a speech therapist, I'm guessing that's probably what it's like for second language people. Um, I, I had a friend that spent some time in South America and he would call me just to be like, I just want to speak English for a minute. I'm so tired because he had to think about everything he was saying. He wasn't just like talking. And so I, I wonder that's kind of what came to mind when they said when I was reading about the fact that she stopped seeing the speech therapist because she's probably sitting there. And instead of just reading or being in that moment of an interview, she's like, OK, and where does my tongue go and how does my mouth go? So it wasn't this natural version of her. And so here we got like the realist form and. She's like the best ever. So embrace those flaws is what I say. That's right. Coco, you can relate to Dorothy here because you were quite the quiet boy in school. I was. I don't think I said anything in high school. You like never checked in with a teacher, didn't, If I was, no hand going up? If I was called upon, I would do my best and answer the question and I would never volunteer any any information or eye contact if I could help it. I got very good at not getting called. And I think that at a certain point they're like, that's fine. Yeah. Because I wasn't, I didn't do anything bad. Yeah, you just got through it. I just didn't want to participate. <laughs> yeah. Or like go ahead. Would you go ahead in the book? You'd be like, okay, everyone's getting a paragraph and we're going this way through the room. So I'm seven paragraphs from now. And then I would sit and reread the whole. So I had no idea what was going on in the story. Nope. I would just reread that paragraph to make sure. I was just waiting for So my I could turn. give a, a flawless performance. <laughs> and that's learning. Yeah. <laughs> waiting your turn to recite something you don't care about in front of a bunch of people you don't like. Dorothy's story of finding the courage to speak to her teacher, to ask for help, which led to her speech impediment being corrected, and her desire to become a teacher being inspired by the whole thing, has now inspired Blanche to do the same thing. The next day after class, she's going to talk with her professor to get some help so she can pass that class. As Dorothy gets up to go to her bedroom, Rose can't help but ask what happened to the teacher that saved Dorothy's school career. Dorothy responds, She retired and got a place in Wode, I mean, Rhode Island. The work is never done. Keep it up, Dorothy. It's night school time as we transition to the outside of a college, watching the people from the pamphlet for the school walk in and out of the entrance before we join Blanche in her classroom. 
What you see behind the teacher is called a chalkboard. See, we used to have to take chunks of chalk, horrible, unusable, textured nightmare chalk, and write things on a board. It's like the whiteboard in classes now, only it never comes clean and made noises only the devil enjoys. Kids in my class would volunteer excitedly to go outside and use the eraser cleaner. They were crazy about it. The To like stamp them together? It was like that, but it was a machine. You'd put it on and it would like vibrate, <laughs> I think. And like the- Shook like, all the chalk it out? It shook the chalk out, yeah. So like from outside the window, you'd see- yeah. Oh my gosh. I was never a fan of that. I liked- I, I hate chalk. I, I hate the hate feeling of it. If, the, chalk, oh. if chalk touches my lips- Forget whoever it. whoever shall touch my lips <laughs> with chalk <laughs> shall die. And you know what? I don't think dry erase boards are all that uh, that great. Wow. This is one of my favorite Blanche outfits. She's preppy casual at school with her kitten heels, flowy white pants, a rib-designed pink sweater with a teal sweater draped over her shoulders, purely for the fashion of it. You are not putting that sweater on over the other. It's Miami for crying out loud. Waiting until all of her classmates are gone, Blanche hesitantly approaches her professor. While he goes by Professor Cooper on the show, in real life he goes by the name Jerry Harden. Getting his start in 1958, Jerry has maintained a steady acting career for nearly 60 years. It wasn't until the 1970s that Jerry landed some more mainstream roles, like on Starsky and Hutch, Little House on the Prairie, and WKRP in Cincinnati. Jerry had roles in all the iconic shows of the 80s and 90s, like Quantum Leap, The X-Files, and Melrose Place, and in big movies like Big Trouble in Little China, Cujo, and The Firm. And Jerry is still working today. Coco, you're a big movie guy. Did you have some Jerry Harden additional info? You know, the, I did know about Big Trouble in Little China. He's great in that. He's only in like one scene, I think. And then I confirmed that he was in a movie called Wanted, Dead or Alive, starring Rutger Hauer as a high-tech bounty hunter and Gene Simmons as a terrorist bomber. And it's a wild movie and he plays a bad guy in a suit. Yeah. And he's great. He's a really um, memorable... To me, I mean, I saw him in this and I recognized him instantly and I didn't know right away, but it was Big Trouble in Little China, which I have seen dozens of times because it was on TV all the time when I was a kid and it was, uh, he's great. He's got, what a face. Approaching Professor Cooper's desk, Blanche asks to speak with him. When he responds with, I'm all ears, meaning I'm listening, she flirts back with, don't sell yourself short, surely hoping her Southern charms would help in the getting assistance department. As Professor Coop stands up and walks towards Blanche, he kind of gestures for her to take a seat in one of those tiny school desks where the desk is attached to the chair, only it's the partial desk kind, you know, the ones that barely hold a binder. So, partially fake leaning on the desk, Blanche formally introduces herself by reaching out a folded over hand. I think I'll start doing that, real fancy-like. But there's no need for such formalities. The professor knows who she is because she's the only student that failed the midterm. Chuckling the failure off, Blanche opens up to her teacher and not only shares that she's struggling, but she's willing to be vulnerable enough to ask for help. Professor Cooper is of no help. He basically states the facts. To pass the class after flunking the midterm, you'll have to ace the final exam, which doesn't seem likely since you're already struggling. Wow, thanks for the motivational speech, teach. 
Then the tone of the conversation starts to change. The professor starts to explain things in a vague manner that sort of start to sound like double entendres, like you'll have to put in a lot of work, or it's sort of like extra credit. Then Blanche responds with something her brother Clayton might say, that she'll basically bend over backwards to make it happen. A sly, foul grin creeps across Professor Jerk's face. Grabbing her paper, he writes down his phone number, his home phone number. And if she really wants to earn her degree by passing his class, she'll need to use that phone number. Taking a second to appreciate his gesture and assuming he meant he could give her help after school hours, it isn't until he reaches out and grabs her hand while asking if she caught his drift that she realizes what he really means. With an uncomfortable smile and a drooping of the face that every woman recognizes as the, oh, he didn't want to help me, he just wants something sexual, look of utter disgust and disappointment. Catch my drift is an English saying that basically means to read between the lines, a wink-wink, if you will. There are some reports that say the use of this phrase goes back to the 1500s, and some say it was even used in Homer's Odyssey. I was unable to find an exact quote, and if you think I'm spending one more moment with Homer's Odyssey post-high school, you are mistaken. Unless, of course, it's for a Jeopardy question. Back at the house, Rose is entering the living room via the kitchen and has a serving tray with two cocktail glasses filled with green jello. While Rose is delighted to have it as a dessert, Sophia is not interested. Fruit doesn't hang in the air naturally, so it shouldn't be suspended in the air via jello. Coco, jello or gel no? You know, I'm generally gel no. I like jello pudding. Well, that's a brand. Oh. Jello brand pudding. Oh, then gel no. And jello is the gelatinous, shaky stuff. Mm. Even as a kid, I would eat that, and but I <laughs> fun quirk. I would always swish it between my teeth. Me too. Shut up. Are you serious? I did too, yeah. All the time. I see people just take a heaping spoonful, like, mmm, gulp. And I'm like, are you are you trying to make me borf right now? Yeah, you gotta chew it up. That's gotta... so thick. And I would but I didn't like chomping it. Even as a kid, I didn't realize how much I didn't like eating animal stuff. Yeah. And I would swish it and then I would have just kind of like jello juice. Yeah, it was like a thick <laughs> jello-y gravy. That's so funny that you did that. I, did I wonder how common that is. I did that all the time with my grandma's jello. She'd make green jello and I would squish it between my sugar-free jello. <laughs> oh no. It was bad. I don't think I've ever even attempted of a fruit or an anything added to jello. I think I would thing. like that more. I didn't like that when I was a kid, but I think I would really like that now. I, I would like that. it more now. Yeah. Uh, some, uh, put some grapes in there. there you, also, some you know stolen what? grapes from the store. Exactly. I don't I don't support that. Do you steal grapes at the store? Do you eat sample things more than one? No. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, I don't think it's okay. I'm not going to say I've never done that. Maybe like out of desperation, I'm at the Winco bin area, the bulk, and it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm about to buy all this, and I do want a cinnamon bear right now while I'm purchasing all these things, but never like- Multiple. Never malicious. No. And I've done that like five times in my life, maybe. Hmm. What, you? Are you a sampler? No, I don't like, I don't, I don't, I have a hard time believing that, that I will get away with that. <laughs> get been, out of our store. I seriously don't think I've ever done it. Wow. That's impressive. Oh. Okay, perfect. Is it impressive or is it lame? Yeah. Well, now stuck with two servings of jello, Rose, in her light aqua dress and yellow apron, sees Sophia making a bit of a mess on the sofa and inquires as to what she is doing. 
Well, it's Tuesday night, so of course she's cleaning out her purse. I also love that as Rose is asking, Sophia is a straight-up jerk and literally says, beat it, I'm busy. Well, that's a New Yorker for you. Coco, you had some Hawkeyes on this and you spotted an Purse item. banana. Purse banana. Purse banana. What was that doing in there? Did she mention that before? Was she hiding it from Rose's fruit salad <laughs> disaster? There are a few things I love about this show as much as I love the Sophia purse bit. No matter the time, day, location, or outfit, she has her beaded purse on her arm. And it is shockingly difficult to find a recreation of it anywhere. I would spend a pretty good chunk of change for a well-made version of her purse. So anybody out there, any takers, let me know. As the clown car of purses is emptied out, strewn across the entire sofa, Rose can't believe all of those items, including a banana, came from that little purse. Sophia is, of course, sarcastic in her response. No, it's not all my purse. I cleaned out my ears and found a rain bonnet, a little plastic cap that has pretty much gone out of style. They were used to keep the fancy hairsprayed styles of the olden days intact so you could encounter rain but still have beautiful hair. She also had fenament in there. Fenament is simply a form of laxative, and it does not go in your ears. Sophia's constantly rude behavior doesn't go unnoticed by Rose, so she asks, what's wrong? Not in any better a mood after being asked, Sophia says, I haven't had sex in 15 years, and it's starting to get on my nerves. And Sal has been gone longer than that, so we know that she's been hit in the scene since he's passed away. Coco, you want to talk about your longest dry spell? <laughs> <laughs> my longest dry spell was from let's see april of 2014 mm -hmm. to december of 2015 <clears throat> i've had a lot of male friends that have gone two years that's you know, like a very common thing not voluntary <laughs> i was yeah. You were an incel. We get it. Yeah. It just was. <laughs> I was not, uh, I was not uh, good dating material. I don't know. You had to focus on yourself, and that's okay. Yeah. I was just drinking a lot. <laughs> While Sophia already represents purple here with her purple and white nightgown, Dorothy arrives in a flowy, grayish-purple-sleeved blouse thing with a purple body and light teal scarf neck addition. It's a mess, but she somehow pulls it off. The Petrilla women are going toe-to-toe -to -toe in a match of the Grumpies. Sophia asking Dorothy, a.k.a. the Big Shot, if she got her tickets. Dorothy, peeved that her mother didn't even say hello, points out that, well, she could have, you know, said hello. So Sophia responds with her only option. Hello, Big Shot. Did you get the tickets? Perhaps it's a history of Big Shot coming from gun-toting gangsters that the Italian-born, Brooklyn-grown Sophia is so comfortable calling Dorothy that. Dorothy is as cranky as her mother after spending the day dealing with scalpers in an effort to get Frank Sinatra tickets. I'm not sure how she was finding these guys, as this was way pre-Craigslist. Perhaps the booking agents knew a guy? Well, the only one she ended up almost making a deal with had things crawling in his hair and asked her to make the deal in a dark alley. Luckily, Dorothy is smarter than her mother, and she didn't go into said alley. Whereas Sophia is like, that's how we did everything back home. That's how I got with Sal. In an effort to comfort her friend, or perhaps herself, Rose sort of gives up on the tickets. If it isn't happening, it's not meant to happen. 
but not Dorothy. She will not take no for an answer. She's got that hustler gene that I am so very fond of. She shuts Rose down and she does it quickly. She says, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be there. Middle age spread and all. While Dorothy was referencing the not as slim as he used to be, but hey, he's in his 70s, Frank Sinatra, Rose misunderstands it to mean Dorothy's extra weight, as middle age spread means the pounds that are inevitably gained in your midlife. While it does affect men, it more often affects women, especially during and after menopause. Before Dorothy can scratch Rose's eyes out, a devastated Blanche enters the front door, home from class. In a backhanded blame of her friends, she says she talked to her professor like they told her to, and it got her sexually harassed. While rhetorically saying out loud, I don't know what to do, Sophia offers this advice, get it in writing. Oh boy. The cranky old lady leaves the room, and Blanche gives us more details as to what happened in the classroom when we, the viewers, weren't there. The professor said that in order to pass the class, she'll have to sleep with him. She was mad at first, but then she said she'd think it over. That's because she was feeling unsure about her ability to pass the class after failing the midterm, and this might be her only way to get her degree and therefore the promotion at work. This is another wonderful example of how progressive and educational the girls were. While lawsuits regarding sexual harassment started to happen with more frequency in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't until Anita Hill's testimony against Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas in 1991 that the term gained household recognition. So here we are in 1986, before extensive laws were passed, before workers were protected, before people really even knew what sexual harassment was, and the girls are having a difficult and frank conversation about it. Rose begs Blanche not to do it, that she'll regret using her body and not her brains. Here we see that there might be some sexually related trauma in Blanche's past, that perhaps she doesn't realize her sometimes reckless or impulsive behaviors, hello, getting engaged again and again and again just a few weeks ago, is probably rooted in the fact that at 16 she was sexualized and that sexuality kind of became her greatest weapon, a weapon that should have a warning label. That's not to say anyone that is hypersexualized has a traumatic past, but there are still just a few red flags, like the fact that she is considering sleeping with her professor. That isn't concerning as in it's being judged. It's concerning that she's willing to give up control of her body and put herself in a dangerous situation because of something she needs. All of it is just so yucky. I do love that when Blanche gets all worked up about talking about herself, she kind of loses her breath and she speaks in short sharp tones. Hearing how uncomfortable and unsure their friend is, Rose and Dorothy offer to help her study so she can pass the exam on her own. Dorothy adds that besides passing the class, Blanche needs to report the professor. She says that speaking from a place of experience. When she started teaching, the principal of her school, while wearing a corset and heels, made the same arrangement with Dorothy as Blanche's professor has with her. She reported him and found out that while she was the only one that got the fashion show, she wasn't the only person he had been harassing. Then, with a distant stare and a squint, you can nearly see the man as Dorothy is clearly picturing him, which, because of our telepathy with the girls, we can picture him too. I 100% agree with Dorothy here, but know why the expectation of reporting such incidents can't be held to a high standard. Sure, here and on my other show, Murder in the Rain, I mention how important it is for every call to be made. If you think you've seen something, or something was off, or you had a bad encounter with someone. 
But even just this week, as we saw Bill Cosby be released from prison, while those who survived encounters with him actually created the Me Too movement were forced to watch their perpetrator walk out a free man, we can all understand why someone might not come forward. I, as I feel almost every woman I know, have been in those situations where things went too far or made you feel uncomfortable, but you don't end up reporting it. For me, it was multiple factors. I was the one that met up with a stranger from a dating website. I was the one that went into his house and went into his room. I was the one that didn't verbalize the words no. Well, I didn't say no because I was scared because I was now in his room. I thought we were waiting to go see a movie. He was bored. So how do you report that? What charge could there be? Did he even think he did anything wrong? Now add to a situation like that a power imbalance, like the one we're seeing with Blanche and her professor. If she reports him, it could not only have an impact on her grades, since, you know, he isn't going to get fired, and the grade will also impact her graduating, which will then impact her job. He holds all the cards. Reporting will do one of two things, get him fired and perhaps even have charges brought, or the more likely one today and especially in the 80s, nothing. Nothing would happen. Well, bad things would happen for Blanche, but nothing bad for the professor, of course. So for anyone who doesn't understand the lack of reporting or people that wait to report, I guess all I could say is maybe go rewatch this episode through that lens. Coco, something that isn't often spoken about because it's a smaller percentage is that men can also be sexually harassed and they make up 16.5% of reported incidents of sexual harassment which you know the number's higher because of non-reporting, but that's what's documented. It's pretty surprising. Yeah. But it's Did you think it was higher or lower? Lower. I would just assume naturally that, they, that men would be affected by that less. Yeah. Yeah. It's decided. Blanche will go back to the school and talk to the dean about her professor. Inspired by Blanche's story, Rose shares how Nils Freelander, the soda jerk who was a jerk, would scoop up and serve her ice cream in an obscene fashion. I'm picturing two scoops maybe side by side on the top of the cone, giving us some real lobster pan vibes, if you know what I'm saying. But of course, before she could ever get the evidence home to prove that he was being inappropriate, it was melted. I wrote down a couple of obscene ice cream flavors. Oh, my God. Yes, please. Rocky (laughs) ch***d. And cup raisin. Chocolate chip cookie. Oh. Mint chocolate. T- oh. Moose. F- They'll say they licky. Ooh, need it all in. Need it all in. Need it all in. Neapolitan. <laughs> need it. Need it all in. <laughs> what most people do. Vanilla. Oh. oh. <laughs> it's the next day, and we're in the dean's office. Although it doesn't look like much of a dean's office, so much as the office of a mid-level manager at a used car dealership. Retiring from acting in 1996, Dean Tucker is played by actor James Staley. He has been an Emmy voter for 30 years, married for 50 years, and has two grown children. Wonder Woman, Mork and Mindy, National Lampoon's Vacation, The Love Boat, Magnum P.I., Empty Nest, Murphy Brown, my personal favorite, Perfect Strangers, and a recurring role on Coach were just some of the roles James had in his career. And don't worry, Dean Tucker will be back again with the girls in the future. But that time, he'll be a doctor. 
Before Blanche enters the office, we get an idea of how spineless this Dean is. While on the phone to the football coach, he's demanding a player be kicked off the team due to his poor academic performance. But given that the student is a huge football player, the Dean also demands the coach be the one to break the news. Blanche comes in, looking like a summer dream in a flowy floral skirt, pink blouse, and yellow jacket. Blanche sits at the Dean's desk and starts to explain why she's there. But before she can get to it, Dean Coward stops her. He's only been working there a few days, and he's hardly equipped to help any student with anything. He can't even find the bathroom. But Blanche doesn't care. She drops the bombshell that her professor has sexually harassed her. His response? Another reason harassment isn't reported and is actually something a boss said to me when I tried to quit. Oh, don't do this to me. As if her being harassed is a burden for him. I really liked how much that made you chuckle. Oh, the way he said, oh, don't do this yeah. to me was so good. Yeah, it was so funny. That was that was the biggest laugh of the episode for me. That's a Coco Big laugh there. Oh, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I had sat around and I had done the math and I was actually like losing money working for her and for like how many hours and all of this stuff. And so I, I wrote this thing and it was a horrible, horrible, horrible work experience. And I'm like shaking because she was so intimidating. It was a very unhealthy uh, power imbalanced relationship. And I, I'm shaking and I hand her the envelope and she's like, what is this? And I said, that's my two weeks notice. I need to resign. I have, you know. I moved here to take care of my grandpa. I'm never home. I don't see him. I need I, I need to quit. And she like, her whole body goes just, you've got to be kidding me. You're not doing this to me right now. You know, so-and-so just quit. Her housekeeper. Her <laughs> housekeeper had quit like the week before. And she's like, you cannot do this to me right now. No, no, no. <laughs> and like, so every time I see that scene, I'm like, mm-hmm. People really say that to people. The dean passes the buck and asks her to come back on Monday. When Blanche pleads for him to be hasty, the dean digs around and finds a questionnaire, a scandalous one that he's too shy to read out loud to his student. Heck, he couldn't even read it out loud to his wife. Poor, unsatisfied wife. Communication is the key to good sex, you know. I like how the writers kind of use this moment as a tongue-in-cheek F you to the bureaucratic process of reporting such things. The dean is like, we'll do something right away, like fill out this form which will do nothing, except maybe give Blanche hope that something might come of it. But it doesn't actually do anything to solve the issue. These forms seem to still be what people try to do to quell complaints of sexual harassment. Blanche cuts to the chase. She tells the dean that she is not doing well in Professor Cooper's class, and in order to pass, she would have to, well, as the form says, do number 5, 6, and 7B. The dean is shocked, even appalled, and follows up with, were there any witnesses? Seeing as Blanche had waited to speak to the teacher until everyone in the class had left, there were not. And that puts the dean in a tough spot because then it's just his word versus hers. Why is it that when a woman has claimed something happened, she needs to have a witness or a video or a recording to prove it, when a man can just deny it and it's accepted at face value? Blanche fights back. This isn't fair. The dean is in no mood to play fair, as he's in his mid-40s and he had never even heard of 7B. 
Blanche puts her flowy skirt and powerful jacket to work while twirling herself out of the room and into the doorway before turning back to the dean to explain, Well, I've known of 7B for quite some time, and as far as I'm concerned, you can go ahead and do it to yourself. Returning home, Ellen, I mean Blanche, bursts into the kitchen. There she finds Rose in a light pink dress, getting a beverage out of the fridge. In a moment that I think only women would understand, or at least definitely not my dad, the two ladies talk right over each other, both excited to share their news. Without allowing Blanche to speak, Rose twaddles on about a radio station, her favorite number 12, and how she keeps change in the car door. See, children, back in the 80s, we didn't have cellular phones, or portable ones, really. So if you heard a contest on the radio and you were on the road, you had to find a payphone, pull over, and call in. Luckily, Rose had two dimes in her car, as that year, the cost of a payphone call had gone up to 20 cents. Jeepers! A lucky number 12 is indeed, as Rose called in and won four tickets to the Frank Sinatra concert. Coco, have you ever won anything on the radio? I believe that having heard about my high school experience, you may have an idea of how I do on the phone in general. You're not going out of your way to call anybody, even if it's for a dream prize. That is correct. <laughs> never called in for one. I've never I've never won anything. I don't do that. My goodness. I uh I don't need handouts. <laughs> I do. <laughs> no, I <don't. laughs> my friend and I used to go kind of we would volley who would win so she'd call and be like guess what i won this thing and so that meant it would be my turn next um and we did that for several years and we've both had really good luck but my dad was like that too i vividly remember the radio was on in the house at in the evening which never happened and maybe my dad was actively listening for this but he called in it was nighttime and he was the winner and he won a copy of the brand new cd billy joel it was That's really cool. fun. So I highly recommend it, guys. Enter the contests. You might as well, yeah. On, on Somebody's got to win. On our other podcast, yeah. Murder in the Rain, our co-host Emily won a, uh, a contest for us to do something with this cool streaming service. So, yeah. And get paid. We're getting money for it. It's insane. Enter those contests. Enter a contest. I'm gonna Someone's got to win. I'm going to have you enter a contest. I want you to enter something. I will. On the on the cruise, I'll probably win some Oh, stuff. my God. Be like Mr. You're going to win all the things. Yeah. After sharing her story of winning, Rose starts to leave the kitchen, forgetting that Blanche wanted to talk to her about what had happened. In reminding her, Blanche says, Rose, get your bohunkus back here. I had never really caught that word in all my viewings or paid much attention to it as it seemed to clearly mean butt or bottom. And that's just what it is. While bohunk has been used as a derogatory slang towards immigrants from Slavic countries, it somehow morphed into a weird form of bohemian and once in the South became slang for the bottom. So what have we learned here? Do not use the word bohunk. Do call people's butts bohunkuses. After demanding Rose's return, Blanche starts to tell the story of what happened in the dean's office. But before she can get into any details, a purple sweater-wearing Dorothy has come bursting into the kitchen, holding and proclaiming three tickets to the Sinatra concert. She does reference him as Old Blue Eyes. Nothing complicated with that nickname. Frank was known for his beautiful, bright blue eyes. 
As Rose starts to tell her about the radio contest, Dorothy bulldozes over her to share the story of how she went to the auditorium and happened to see some kids outside that were selling tickets to a woman. I love the idea that for apparently weeks before a concert, scalpers are just waiting outside hoping to land a sale. Anyway, Dorothy went up to the woman that bought the tickets, and she explained how much the show would mean to her, and boom, the lady sold her the tickets. Rose couldn't believe how easy that was. You got a lady to give up tickets just because you said you wanted them? Dorothy did forget to mention that she also threw in that maybe she only had three weeks left to live. Fun in theory, scary in case you jinx yourself. After Dorothy shares her story, Blanche again tries to tell hers. But again, before she can even start, Rose starts all over again with where she was driving and the lucky number 12. Blanche won't have it. She perfectly surmises what happens with Rose and even adds a bing-bang-boom, she won. There are a few people in my life that I wish could tell a story like that. I know I can twaddle, but some people can twaddle. Realizing how rude they've been, Dorothy and Rose sit at the table, and after she forces them to beg, they beg, and Blanche starts talking. But once again, the kitchen door opens, and Blanche drops her head. This time, it's Sophia, the lady in red, who has her own story of how she has three tickets in the front row. She called Frank Caravici, the fish guy, who then called Frank Tortoni, the dry cleaner, who is Tina's cousin. No, not Tina Tortoni, Tina Sinatra. This is such a great moment of comedy, very who's on first. Now that they have six too many tickets and apparently no friends to call to sell them to, the girls decide they'll go to the venue and become the scalpers themselves. Blanche is hurt and frustrated. She has been trying to tell her friends what happened at school, and they can't step away from their own problems long enough to hear her. She decides she is going to get to studying, which she calls tall studying. When you Google that, you'll just get a lot of studies about tall people, so I'm assuming it's just a southern word for a lot. But before she hits the books, she has earned herself an ice cream sundae. Okay, Coco, let's discuss. There's a strange moment where Blanche goes to do the sundae, and then she turns kind of menacingly to Rose and is like, you better get out of here in case they get crazy with these chopped nuts. But there's been no reference at all in the episode to that moment. So I don't know if it was... Oh, maybe it was about the ice cream boy. Did he say something about it? Oh, what was the ice cream boy? Oh, the, the soda jerk? The soda jerk? I don't think so. What I thought in the the time since we finished watching the episode, which was like an hour ago, that the – I think that she's it's – a, it's a poorly written joke, but I think that she might be saying that she's going to chop up some nuts for her Sunday, and that – Rose is a nut because she's like a little nutty lady mm. and that she might, you know, she's, she's of course not going to do that, but she's joking that right. you're a nut Should and I might chop you. you up. You better get out of here. I think oh, that's maybe. what it is. That's my guess. I took it too as like, um, because Rose is so delicate and naive that the idea of chopped nuts on a Sunday was like extravagant. And so like, you better look out. Things are getting wild in here. I'm going to even have chopped nuts, but I don't know. It feels like, a joke from earlier was cut from the episode, and they forgot to cut that part too. Yeah, I wonder. Oh, I wonder if there was a joke about the soda jerk getting his nuts chopped or something like that. Like there was like some sort of, oh, um, you know, euphemism maybe. or something. And I mean, every story that she tells, someone there's like some sort of generally like a weird injury or some sort of <laughs> odd odd occurrence. So I would I would guess that the soda jerk was the soda jerk in her. Yeah. Town? Yeah. 
Something happened with his chop nuts. Because they didn't. She would just. She just said like, and then he would scoop it up. I hope I'm not. I didn't miss something. It's very possible she snuck in a little line about sprinkling the nuts on there or something. But I don't think so. But I'm going with that. It's a mystery. They cut out a joke about that guy's nuts. <laughs> it's been a few weeks now as we've gone from the midterm to the final in Blanche's psychology class. It makes me feel so uncomfortable that she didn't ask one of the girls to join her, you know, so she could have a witness and not be left alone in the room with this douche since she was the last student to finish the test. Also, hey guys, I know you don't really think about it, but see how the professor walks up behind her and then says, pencils down? Yeah, don't do that. I actually had a guy do that to me at a restaurant the other day. He just showed up from behind and started pouring me water. And if I had had any kind of trauma that involved personal boundaries like that, it would have been a very different situation. Probably more dangerous for him than me. Acting like the offer to sleep with Blanche in exchange for an A is as simple and appropriate as a childhood bet, the professor points out that her grade right now will be a make-it-or-break-it situation. When Blanche explains that she won't be repeating his class, he takes that as her agreeing to the offer. It's quite the contrary. Because of his disgusting, unchecked, and unpunished behavior, she was motivated to conquer the class. She put her nose to the grindstone and worked her bohunkus off to not only spite him, but to prove to herself that she didn't need to lose any of her self-respect just because she was being told she couldn't do something. That's why the professor is told he can kiss her A. We're back home and waiting in one of the living room chairs, Blanche hears the door open and is happy to see but was worried for the girls. It's after 2 a.m. after all. While Blanche is still in her finals outfit of jeans and a t-shirt and her yellow jacket, Rose is in a mumsy pink and white dress with far too much shoulder pad and Dorothy is back in her Christmas tree shiny green yellow and purple number from a couple episodes back. Or as Coco called it, Riddler's Revenge. <laughs> when Blanche says she was so worried about them being out so late she almost called the police, that's when Rose tells her, you should have. That's who we were with. Sophia breaks the news, wearing a purple and blue dress with puffy shoulders, a white collar, and large black bow. She explains how Dorothy sold the extra tickets to an undercover cop. For 60 years, it was illegal to scalp tickets or resell them for anything more than $1 more than the purchase price. When Dorothy did it, it was a second-degree misdemeanor. Sophia's right. If she hadn't faked that heart attack, they would still be in trouble. Well, Dorothy would be at least. She would have to go to court, and she would have faced up to two months in jail, six months of probation, and a $500 fine. Rose, now showing off just how bridesmaid from prom hell her dress is, she starts to moan about how her life will be ruined if any word of the arrest ever got back to St. Olaf. Although Dorothy is the only one that should really be in any legal trouble here, seeing as she was the seller. Dorothy is pissed and starts to yell at Rose. And what are you so worried about? They'll take away your ice fishing license or your horned helmet? Rose is mad because her lip is missing. Her lip is missing because Dorothy was so disrespectful to her people. It isn't a hat with horns. It's called a Lugenherden. Well, sort of, Rose. As far back as 350 AD, there were horned helmets worn by Germanic soldiers, but they were called cornuti. But when it comes to Vikings, 
There has actually been no archaeological information proving that horned hats or helmets were ever even worn by them. Isn't that a fun fact? I often wonder how the show came up with Rose's language, like if the writers specifically came up with terms or if they kind of let Betty make things up and roll with it as they went. After Rose corrects Dorothy and explains what she's talking about, Dorothy stares at her with dead shark eyes before nearly leaping off of the couch to attack her with all of the pent-up rage of a middle-aged woman who was denied seeing Frank Sinatra. Sophia holds Dorothy back and Blanche hops in to help before reminding them that, sure, you spent the night in the slammer, or at least at the police station, but I took my final exam, hello? Blanche is feeling confident. Not only is she confident she got a passing grade, but she's proud of her hard work, that she didn't let this guy win. But that's not necessarily the best thing. I mean, if you have a teacher that does this, telling him off and passing the class is one thing someone might do to deal with it. But if it's too uncomfortable a situation and you can't get him fired, you don't have to finish the class. You aren't weak or anything just because you recognize your needs and abilities. It's healthy if you know when to walk away from something that isn't serving you. Sadly, the sexism lives on as Blanche, even with a college degree now, won't be able to get the promotion at work. That's because she spent her money on school and her co-worker, who was also up for the promotion, spent it on plastic surgery earning her the spot. Hey, Blanche, that place sounds pretty toxic. You should get out of there. Losing out on the promotion hasn't turned Blanche sour, though. While her co-worker can walk around with her new looks that will eventually fade, Blanche has invested in her education, which will stay with her forever. While Blanche prevailed in the end, the pressure of not having to put yourself in an unwanted situation in exchange for anything is not okay. The smug look on the professor's face in the end had him smiling as though his pressure had made Blanche a better student. Yuck. There's no wrong way to deal with sexual harassment. It's good to report, but understandable when one doesn't. Either way, it's important to talk to someone, be it a dean or a friend, about what is going on. Fear, intimidation, and power are not good enough reasons for anyone to suffer. And another thing, don't get greedy when you win tickets. Just give the extras away. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. If you or anyone you know is experiencing sexual harassment, please call RAIN at 1-800-656-HOPE. Be sure to join us next week when we delve into unpleasant and unaired territory with the flu. Banana purse. No, not Tina Tortini. Tina Sinatra. Tortoni. Oh no, what'd I say? I think you said Tortuni or something. Oh no. Who then called Frank Tortuni the dry cleaner, who is Tina's cousin. No, not Tina Tortuni. You did say Tortuni again. Is it Tortoni? Oh my god, what? Is it T O R T O N I? T O R T O N I. Yeah, so Tortoni. 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 You said Tortuni. The fish guy, who called Frank Tortuni. No. Tortoni. Tony, the name Tony. Who then called Frank Tortoni the dry cleaner, who is Tina's cousin. No, not Tina Tortoni. Tina Sinatra. That was terrible. Tony. Delete, delete, delete. Please, sir, never again. (laughs) Uh (laughs) And it was that river song.
River Song. Or the Faith Song. Um... Faith Song. Oh, God. I don't know. I'm Where sorry. it like builds up. Um... River Faith and Joel. <laughs> Yeah, so, oh, River of Dreams. In the middle of the night. Oh. I go walking in my sleep. I never knew what that song was da, called. Da, 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 da. And you know what? To the River of Dreams. I... <laughs> I don't want you to change. Maybe a little bit. A little bit. How dare you? <laughs> in reminding her, Blanche says, Road. Road. Three tickets to the... I'm sure there are people that have lost their lives at the request of Don King. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> and the Ying Yang twins. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's not him. That's little um, John. Whatever. It's Lil. <laughs> you would have friends that would stake out the different locations. So like for no doubt, it was, okay, Jessica's going to be on the phone. Alicia's going to be down at the thing. Jennifer will be at the other place. You know, so it was like. A group effort to make things happen because <laughs> you didn't want to lose out on those tickets on Sunday morning. <laughs> That's a really tough question. There's so many, but I'd have to say Michael Jackson. Really? Rips to the king. No. Rips to the king. <laughs> <laughs> the music isn't even allowed in our house. <clears throat> Rips to the king. Money's worth is my my coupon butler. <laughs> Because that's how I feel when I'm trying to cheer someone up or point out a positive at positive. Disappointed or not, she will persevere. Persevere. <laughs> it's too much. Cancel school. Yeah, that's what we say in this on this program is don't go to school. But we love learning so much. We though. do love learning. Go to school, everybody. Oh, we love fun facts. Oh. Forming a pus filled Oh my god, my throat went when I said pus. Oh my god, that was so gross. <laughs> I don't want to be friends with you anymore. <laughs> Pass. Starting with one from Freud. Roy's, Roy's, <laughs> Freud Roy's. <laughs> She's been spending her day driving around to every ticker, bro ticker broker. You know who oh. worked hard to get those keys? The custodian. That's right. Think about it. Bill Cosby and all your doctorates. <laughs> Cut that out. Can you, I can't believe. Ugh. That that was kind of like a blanket, blanket. Me as well. I thought Speaking it was... of blanket, <laughs> Michael Jackson's baby. Remember when he did that Just dangle? All these bloopers of Michael Jackson. <laughs> it was fine that he hung the baby over the side. That baby's fine. They're yeah. all fine. They're alive. They're fine. And they're his. They're definitely his they're children. children. In I please God. <laughs> let me have a dark dry erase marker. Did I forget to mention, did we already pass that part of the episode where Sophia has a purse banana? Oh. Then the tone of the conversation starts to... <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, out of, out of the yeah, gate. Yeah, just I immediately, it just went away. Was... I love, too, that Rose's ass... And maybe she's got like a... Yeah, she's got a roll wrapped up in a napkin or My something. My grandma leaving a restaurant. No kidding. <laughs> Coco, you want to talk about... She, she said that the term gained household recognition. Son of a bitch. Are you talking about me? Am I your boss? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're my boss, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. 
You'll always be my sister.